You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you have met us in Jesus with your good news, good news of great joy for all people. I pray that right now by your spirit, we'd have a fresh encounter of that good news. I pray that we would cherish it and treasure you, that we'd be a people who would love you, a people who would live for you. We pray this, Lord God, for our good. We pray this for the good of this city. And indeed, we pray this for the glory of your name. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. And all of God's people said with one super loud voice, amen, amen. amen. How are we doing, City on a Hill? We're great. We're good. Let's give it up for the band, Dave and the team. Leading us and lifting our eyes to Jesus. You may take a seat. Wonderful to be with you. If you're new or visiting, great to have you here. My name is Guy Joy and privileged to serve as the pastor of City on a Hill, a church committed to knowing Jesus, making Jesus known. So I want you to imagine yourself walking into a local eye clinic for a free checkup. It's a Thursday afternoon, it's 2 p.m., 
You walk through the glass doors, you fill in some paperwork from the receptionist, and you, you walk into the waiting bay area and, and you take a seat in the waiting area. You look around, there's probably about seven or so people there, uh, most of them scrolling their phones, reading a few magazines, everyone like you, waiting to hear their name so they can leave the waiting area and go have their free checkup. And you sit there for a couple of minutes, but then you hear this loud buzzer go off, like a bleep. And strangely enough, the moment this buzzer goes off, these seven other people in the waiting area get off out of their chair, stand for a few moments, and then sit down. You look around and you think to yourself, what on earth is going on here? About a minute later, same buzzer goes off. And once more, the seven people in the waiting area get out from their chair, stand, and then sit down. No one says anyone, anything. No one explains what's going on. They're just standing up, the sound of this buzzer, and then sitting down. So you're thinking to yourself, what? Have I missed something here? <laughs> have I missed an instruction on the way in? Maybe I should have read those details in that paperwork I just signed. What's going on? And as you're thinking through these questions, the buzzer goes off again, and once more, everyone gets out of their seat, stands, looks around, and then sits down. What do you do? Well, it turns out, this really did happen. A young woman walks into an eye clinic to get a free checkup on a Thursday afternoon at 2. She goes in and she really does fill in some paperwork and she really does go into the waiting area and there really are seven people sitting there waiting with her. And she really did hear this buzzer go off and she really does see these seven people with no explanation just get up out of their chair, stand, look around, and then sit down. The first time the buzzer goes off, she looks and she's a bit confused. The second time, she starts asking herself questions. What do you think she did at the third time? When the buzzer went off for the third time, and she saw everybody get out of their chair, she got up out of her chair as well. No one told her she needed to do that. No one instructed her to do it. Just upon seeing everyone stand up, she hears the buzzer and she gets out of her seat and she stood and then sat down. And she became very committed to that. In fact, as people's names were called out to go to the optometrist, eventually she was the only person in the waiting area and the buzzer would go off and she quite diligently got up out of her chair, stood for a bit, and then sat down. Of course, what she hadn't realized is that those seven people were all paid extras, and she was part of a very large social experiment. An experiment to test what? The power of social conformity. Uh, that we all shape our beliefs and our behaviors by those around us. And I find this fascinating because we all pride ourselves on being an individualistic society. I play by my own rules. I do what I want. I stand on my own two feet. And yet when it comes to social pressure, when it comes to the realities of life and what people are doing around us, we're so, so easily influenced 
right? And we, we could play this and apply this in so many different areas, couldn't we? What, what we wear, who we date, where we work, what we eat, who we vote for, right? But today, I really want you to consider this in light of our faith, how this impacts our journey as a Christian. Because you and I know that we are living in a culture, particularly here in Melbourne, where the vast majority of people around us don't go to church. In our schools and universities, they are now teaching a worldview uh, that is very different to the storyline of the Bible. Christianity is not just uh, questioned in the public square, it's often criticized, and sometimes it's even condemned. Now, it's not to say that people in our lives aren't asking big questions and have longings and searchings, it's just that now, in our day, in our world, the vast majority of people find their significance and status and their satisfaction apart from God. So, what does that mean for you and I who are in Christ? It means that there are going to be many moments where you find yourself outnumbered. Moments where you see the vast majority of people going the opposite directions. Moments where you hear that buzzer and feel that pull to get out from the chair just so that you could be accepted and belong in the eyes of the world. So what do we do with that? How do we live in that tension? How do we remain faithful to Christ in a culture that is post-Christian, secular? Today we begin a 10-part series exploring uh, the book of 1 Peter. And what I love about 1 Peter is the way the Lord acknowledges the tension that you and I experience every day, and the way then the Lord leans on in and gifts us with a message of hope. A message, profound and practical, that will help you keep your eyes on heaven and apply this life here on earth. So you've got a Bible handy. Let me encourage you to open to 1 Peter. You'll find it in the New Testament. If you can't find it, the words will be on the screen. Uh, This is going to be a great, great series, and I'm so excited that we get to do this, and we get to do this together. So beginning in verse 1, Peter says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. Right? So out of the gate, Peter introduces himself. He's the author of the letter. And who is Peter? Peter is a follower of Jesus, right? He's actually a former fisherman, dropped his nets to follow Jesus. Really interesting character. You can read about him in the New Testament. Uh, And we discover that he, he was actually one of Jesus' closest friends. And you'll notice in your text right there that he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, biblically, in the New Testament, an apostle... Uh, was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Right? Just, just to consider that. Jesus, uh, Peter was there to hear Jesus' teaching, to watch the miracles, but he was also there for the death of Jesus and indeed the resurrection. Right? That Jesus rose 
physically, spiritually, eternally. And he had seen it with his own eyes. And so as an apostle, he was a witness to the resurrection and he testified, he declared it. An apostle was a a messenger, someone set apart to herald the good news of Jesus. And that's what Peter devoted his life to proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, helping people know who Jesus is. And so around 62 AD, here he is penning this letter to Jewish and non-Jewish Christians located across four different provinces in the Roman Empire. Now, there is so much in this opening text uh, that I would love to explore. And really, I encourage you this week, find a tree, find a quiet place, read through the opening 12 verses and just receive all God wants, all that God wants to say to you today. I mean, it's, it's just incredible jewels and diamonds in this text. But as I was preparing this, I really felt the Lord drawing me to just one phrase, one phrase, two words that really captures who we are in Christ. Has anyone picked up what that one phrase, two words is? Anyone? Elect exiles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are, what's that word, that phrase? Elect exiles. Let me encourage you to underscore that in your Bible or tattoo it on your wrist, whatever you need to do to remember that phrase, because it is not only foundational in understanding what First Peter is about as a book, but fundamental when it comes to who we are as Jesus and what it now means to live for Him in a world like this. So, who are we? First, two parts today. First, we are exiles. We are exiles. Now, what does Peter mean when he says, you're an exile? Uh, Some translations will have sojourners, some will have strangers, some will have aliens. Essentially, the word is used to describe a temporary resident living in a foreign place. An exile is a temporary resident living in a foreign place. That's not to say that they were escaping a tyrannical leader or they were barred from their home country. In fact, most of these Christians would have had jobs, would have had homes, would have had relationships in the community, all of that. Peter is making a significant and spiritual point. What's he saying? He's saying that despite living in this world, despite living and working in Melbourne, despite going to a school or university in Melbourne, this is not your true home. You're an exile. You're a sojourner. You're a temporary resident living in a foreign land. Right, we read this elsewhere in the Bible, where the writer of Hebrews says, Here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Right? We seek the kingdom of heaven. Here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Uh, my wife and I um, have been married now. In fact, we'll celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary this year. Pretty excited about that. Yeah, I reckon it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, early last year, we had the opportunity to buy our first family home. Uh, the home is like was built in 1905. Uh, the previous owners had pretty much abandoned all care, and it was completely overrun. Uh, it was advertised to us as a land development opportunity, uh, which is the real estate agent way of saying you should knock this place down. Ness and I walked in, looked at the home, looked at our budget, and we're like, ah, oh, it's perfect. 
We could live here, right? And so we've been spending the last year trying to clean the place up, get out all the weeds, repair the broken wood, paint it, all that kind of stuff. When we were looking to get the house, I noticed that real estate agents, they had this one question that used to ask, uh, come up a few times, and I assume that they asked this question to make me spend more money than I actually have. Um, they would say, is this your forever home? <laughs> right? Is this going to be your forever home? Could you see yourself forever here? Right? No. <laughs> this is not my forever home. And by that, I'm not saying I'm going to like sell up one day and move somewhere fancy, like, I don't know, uh, Turak or Frankston. Right? <laughs> it's not my forever home. Why? Because fundamentally, I'm an exile. You're an exile, right? You were made for a different world. Now, does that mean that we treat this world with disdain or treat it like a cheap motel? No. But as an exile, you have to now see your life in light of eternity. You now view every day, every decision your beliefs and your behaviors in light of the world that is to come. And suppose you're here today and, and you're not yet a Christian, somehow someone dragged you along, you're here. Um, I also want you to know how profoundly relevant this point is for your life as well. Because you and I know that this world, it's working overtime to help you think and to believe the lie that this is all there is. Right? And you... We, we get a million and one messages every week trying to tell us that this is all there is and that everything you need for satisfaction and significance and status is right at your doorstep. And, and, and so all you need to do is, 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 is work hard, run fast, go after it and get it, and it's yours. It's all right here. But speaking honestly, if you consider that, reflect on that, face into that, you know that that's not working. You know that really that's an endless treadmill, isn't it? Because you just run from one thing to the next, trying and trying and seeking, and you get this thing and you want that thing, or you get that thing, you think you need more of that thing. It's that sense within you right now that maybe you were made for something more. There's a great author, C.S. Lewis, um, great book, Mere Christianity. If you're exploring faith, I encourage you to read it. And he's a guy who was a convinced atheist for most of his life and lectured in philosophy at Oxford. Uh, his life was changed r- remarkably by the gospel. And I want you to hear this, this, this reflection he has about the human desires and what they say about us and this world. He says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. 
God has placed eternity on your heart. Heaven is not, uh, this earth is not your true home. You were made ultimately for another country, your true country, which is to come. It's important to say this is not just like some intellectual or philosophical idea. This radically changes how we now live in this world, right? So take something as practical as money. Uh, I grew up in a home where money was like the idol in the household, the savior, the thing that would get us out of being broke or in debt, right? Uh, My parents separated when I was nine. I lived with my mom, and uh, she worked two, sometimes three uh, jobs, and and was really, a lot of the time, looking to me to, to kind of be that answer, right? To make that money, to get the first million and get us somewhere else, right? You should have seen her face when I told her I was going to Bible college and going to be a church minister, right? And just see the sunk of her face. Why? Because she had believed the mantra of the world that said money was your ticket to the good life. Money would be your freedom. Money would give you the status. Money would give you the friends. And so what do we see in the world? People grabbing after money. And yet when you read the Bible and read of the early church, what are they doing? They're giving their money away. They're serving people. They're blessing the poor, right? Now, now they bought stuff. They would have had homes and occasionally lashed out and bought a shiny camel or something like that. They had stuff. But rather, get, rather than getting stuff and keeping it, they got stuff and then gave it away. They opened up their homes. They helped plant churches. They, they were generous people. They were a counter-cultural community. And then think about something like sex. Sex is great. God has gifted us with sex. It's to be enjoyed by one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. And yet you and I know that we're living in a culture today where sex is no longer a gift to be enjoyed, but a God we worship. Our generation is having more sex with more partners, younger than any other generation. Right? And sex is is no longer just something we do. It's become this definer of who we are. And yet, what do you discover when you read the New Testament? What do you see among the early church? You see men and women pursuing holiness. You see men and women pursuing purity. You see men and women pursuing faithfulness. It's not to say... They had perfect lives and they didn't stumble in sin. Of course they did. We all do. But deep in their identity was this desire to live for Jesus and to trust Jesus and to enjoy that which transcends this world. Why? Because they knew they were exiles. Exiles live countercultural lives. Not because we hate this world, but because we know we were made for another. So ask yourself, is that evident in your life? Are you living a life right now that only makes sense in light of eternity? And of course, knowing you're in exile should not only transform how you receive and view the good things in this world, but also how you see, receive the difficult things as well. Right, so look at what uh, Peter says, I think it's verse 8. He says, in this, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Right? So, so there's a joy, even though now you are being grieved by various trials. Now, what are the trials he's talking about? It could be, you know, what we'd say is like general suffering of life. Right? The loss of health, the breaking down of a relationship, uh, even, even death or loss of job. Right? These are the various trials that believer and unbeliever all experience. But when you read First Peter, it seems to me that he's, he's particularly talking about the trials that those of us who are in Christ face. Um, because these Christians weren't following the grain of their culture, because they were choosing to say no to what everyone else was around them doing, because they wouldn't bow down to the idols of their day or celebrate with the pagan festivals in their world, because they chose Jesus and put Jesus first, they were made outsiders. They were ridiculed. Some of them lost their jobs or didn't get their promotions. Some were cut off from family and ostracized by friends. Um, I'm for those of you new to our church, you know, I, uh, I wasn't raised uh, going to church, reading the Bible, um, didn't know who Jesus was for most of my life, and I became a Christian, uh, similar age to what Ben shared earlier, when I was about 15 years of age. And, and I had this naive assumption that the only reason people around me didn't believe in Jesus was because they hadn't heard about Jesus, right? That was my assumption. It's a bit like um, croissants at Loon. Who's been to Loon and, and got delicious, mm, just thinking about it now, it's making me hungry, right? They're amazing, and my assumption is either you know they're amazing because you've tasted and seen that they are good, or you just haven't been there yet, because nothing, like how good they are is not up for debate, they're amazing. Same with Jesus, right? He's amazing, and so I have this naive assumption as a teenager that I'm just going to share him and everyone's going to love him. And I'm sure I've shared this before, but I remember in probably like year nine or ten, we had a, a school common room uh, where you know, kids would go to hang out and be cool and listen to music, right? And we'd go there, we'd listen to music, have a good time. And I had this bright idea that I would go along to the class, uh, the lunchtime, um, to the common room, and I would put on my DC Talk mixtape. Come on. Who remembers DC Talk? Who's still listening to DC Talk? Yes, I see that hand. Right? If those of you who don't know what a mixtape is, you're probably born after 1990. Um, it's like an iPhone, only way cooler. That's all you need to know about that. So I go in uh, to the common room, I put in my DC mixtape, DC talk mixtape, press play, thinking, what on earth could go wrong here? Nothing. And for at least 10 seconds, people were into it. They're like, hey, these guys are cool, this is great. And then people start to twig, there's something about these rappers. <laughs> They're not talking about sex. They're not talking about the rims on their car. Wait a minute. They're talking about Jesus. And I kid you not, true story, this guy, who will remain nameless, gets up out of his chair, runs across, injects out my tape, and throws it against the brick wall. I'm like, is DC talk really that bad? Right? And he comes straight over to me and says, how dare you play this Jesus stuff in this school? Right? It was actually more colorful than that. I've given you the light FM version. <laughs> right? Now, clearly, this is not like the, the lions of Nero. <laughs> but when you're a school kid, 
right? As Ben was sharing, when you're a school kid and everyone around you is now calling you it. I was reminiscing with my wife actually about this this week, and like me, she got converted later in life, actually about 18, no one in her household were Christians, quite a moralistic kind of family, but no one went to church, believe in God. Um, and what was really bizarre is, you know, she, like most, like me and so many others, was still, you know, doing the partying and drinking and all of that, but the thing that really freaked out her parents was when she started going to church. <laughs> That's when they started to get serious. We've got to intervene. You know, give her drugs, sure. Give her alcohol, Fine don't talk about Jesus, <laughs> right? Such was the intensity. They discovered that, you know, at church, there's this thing where you pass the plate, uh, you know, you give money, and she started giving some money. In fact, she started to sponsor a child through World Vision. Seemed like a an, an, uh, response to the gospel. Once they discovered that, they took away her allowance and started threatening her that they'd take her out of her will. Again, not the lions of Nero, but just a reminder that we're all exiles, strangers. And you know that, don't you? Because you've experienced it. You feel that tension. If you are in Christ, you've, you've felt the sense of being an outsider. Right? Being a Christian today is, is not convenient. It comes with a cost. It takes courage to be a Christian. Do you know that? It takes courage uh, to get up in the morning, and go to church when everyone else is sleeping in or eating eggs benedict. It takes courage to be generous with what you have when everybody else is keeping what they have. It takes courage for you to walk an authentic, countercultural life in your workplace when the corporates have clearly shut the door to Jesus. It takes courage to say no to that non-Christian boyfriend or no to that non-Christian girlfriend when everybody in the world is telling you that you've got to find a soulmate. It takes courage to be a Christian and remain faithful to your husband and wife when everybody in the world is telling you, just follow your heart. Do what makes you feel good. You do you. It takes courage to open up in your own home and say that, yes, Jesus is my treasure, when you know that your mom or your dad are going to roll their eyes and look away. Being a Christian is not convenient. It comes with a cost. It requires courage. Why? Because we are exiles. I love this quote by um, American philosopher uh, Alice Cooper. Um, He says this, drinking beer is easy, trashing your ho hotel room is easy, but being a Christian, that's a tough call, that's rebellion. Who are we? Who are you? You're in exile. But that's not the end of the story. Part two, we are elect, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, right? So you could have exile tattooed on this wrist, you want to have elect tattooed on that one, right? We are, <laughs> I'm going to get myself fired here. We're elect, <laughs> we're elect exiles, right? Now, underscore this word elect, because I reckon there's a good chance, particularly if you've grown up in church, this is kind of one of those words that most people just dance over, fly over, completely misunderstand, 
and overlook the glorious fact of our election, which to me is just so central and significant when it comes to my identity and salvation in Jesus. What does it even mean? Well, to elect something is to choose something or someone for yourself. So biblically, what Peter is saying, that when it comes to God and His hand, He has chosen for Himself a people. He has elected a people to belong to Him and sit at the very center of His light and love. Though you were lost in sin, though you were broken, a slave to this world, walking in darkness, a child of wrath, God has pursued you. He has intervened according to His grace to rescue you from darkness and bring you into His marvelous light. You weren't struggling at sea, calling out. No, you were face down, spiritually dead, and He has come to give you life. He has elected you for salvation. Now, I know in a room of this size that just talking about election could cause a theological food fight, right? A lot of ink, and let me say, blood has been spilt on this very doctrine. Christians have been talking about this, debating this for years. And and broadly speaking, there are kind of like two schools of thought. On one hand, you have what is known as conditional election, right? And, And this is the view that before the foundation of this earth, God looked through the corridor of time and looked to see the people who would choose Him. Who in this world would say yes to Jesus? Who would use their own free will to choose me? Whoever chose me, I would then choose them. In other words, there's an election, but it's conditional on your choice first. Right? And this, this vision, uh, this, vision this, this position uh, is most often attributed to Jacob Arminius and gospel preachers like Wesley and Tozer. Then there is a second school of thought known as unconditional election. And in unconditional election, uh, it's argued that before the foundation of the earth, God looked through the corridor of time, but instead of electing people based on their will, they were elected according to God's will. God chose according to His purpose and according to His plan. It wasn't about your choice. You only chose God because God first chose you. Now, here at City on a Hill, our doors are wide open and we welcome people near and far, regardless of where they stand on that theological spectrum. Right? You may be here today or tuning with us online uh, and you may say, I'm a card-carrying Calvinist. Or you may have been predestined to be Arminian. Right? It really doesn't matter. We, we love you. We care for you. And here's what's not up for negotiation. The centrality of God in your salvation. Right? That's not up for debate. The centrality of God in your salvation. Look at how Peter goes on. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to whose mercy? His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Right? So who gets the praise for your salvation? God. Who caused you to be born again? God. It was according to His great mercy. Right? It wasn't about us. 
It wasn't because we were smarter than the next guy or more spiritual than the next girl. We were elected according to His great mercy. And He did that through the resurrection of Jesus. Right? You want to underscore that because you and I, we, we didn't choose God. We chose sin. Jesus chose God. He was faithful to God the Father. We choose worldly happiness. He chose holiness and purity. Jesus is your perfect substitute who lived that life. You could not live that life without sin and died the death. You should have died that death for sin. And then by the power of God, he was raised to new life. That in him, you might have salvation. Do you have a responsibility when it comes to the good news? Absolutely. Right? The Bible says in Romans, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But according to Peter and the Bible, that salvation is not about us. It's not from us. It's God's. It's owing to Jesus and his great mercy. And that's good news for someone thinking about faith, but it's also good news for people who've been running this race for some time. Because isn't it true that we can find ourselves in a ditch? Times where you feel like you've stumbled and fallen. I do, and I'm tempted to think that I can just claw myself out of there. The gospel says that my salvation from start to finish is according to His great mercy. And in this mercy, you now have this beautiful, rich, living hope. Look at what Peter says next. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Talking about hope in 2022 is is quite bold because we've all experienced the fragility of life. We've all seen so much hope slashed these past few years. And so often we see this angst in the world about this year, these years that we are in because their hope is in this world and we've seen that this hope is fading. We've seen this world crumble. We've seen our dreams shatter on the floor. But this is where you are not in this world. You are in Christ. And therefore your hope is not dead. It is alive. You arose this morning with a living hope. And what is that hope in? Well, Peter unpacks it, doesn't he, when he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Here in this world, we have moments of pleasure, don't we? Four o'clock yesterday, so sunny outside, got the kids, my wife in the car, we went to the beach, the water is now finally warm in Melbourne. The sun is shining. we got fish and chips on the beach. Right? There are good moments that you, as an elect exile, can enjoy and thank God for. Whether that's a great and deep and meaningful relationship with a friend, a new job, promotion at work, lots of things we get to enjoy. But we all know that they're fleeting pleasures. They're there, we have them, and then they're gone. Right? You can spend the first half of your life chasing these things and the next half wondering where they all went. Peter wants you, God wants you to have a vision of eternity 
and to know that a day is coming where you arrive at your true country and you'll experience the goodness of God and His creation and it'll be full and it will be forever. It'll be undefiled by sin. In other words, every relationship you have won't have pride and envy and and lust disrupting it. It'll be perfect. It'll be holy. Your work in the ground won't be corrupted with thorns and thistles. There'll be joy in your work. And of course, the greatest treasure of all, there'll be joy in God. Because now we see in part, don't we? Then you'll see face to face. Then you'll experience His love as it was always intended to be. You'll know Him, you'll treasure Him, you'll feel Him, you'll see Him. He will be your full and forever treasure. And that treasure, that hope that we have, that inheritance, oh, it's, it's not just alive and certain, it's secure. You see what Peter said in verse 4 and 5? He says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The key word here is guarded. Right? For those of you who were with us at Christmas, our Christmas service on the 19th, you would have heard me share about a whole bunch of very random incidents and my bike, my treasured loved bike, got stolen. And uh, the love of my life gone. It was a terrible way to end a, a year. Um, and yet, thanks be to God, insurance came through and I was able to buy another second-hand bike. And so I'm out running, uh, riding again and, and I love this bike. Uh, she's beautiful. And, and I love her so much that I've noticed that she's, she's always in my sight now. I don't want to be in a situation where she's taken away from me ever again. In fact, such is my obsession now with my bike that I went to a cafe in the city, and rather than locking it up like most normal human beings outside, I wheeled her on into the cafe and asked the manager, is it right if she sits with me? <laughs> right, so there I am with my latte, laptop, me and my bike, just sharing this nice moment. Why? <laughs> Because we guard what we love. The good news of the gospel is that God loves you. He loves you. It's not this distant, far away love. Right now, He is guarding you. Guarding me from what? Poor health? No. We see all through the New Testament, the early church, people suffer, people die. Uh, uh, Poverty? Does God promise to protect and help me to be wealthy in this world? No, right? Rich, poor, lots of people make up the body of Christ. So what is He actually guarding then? Your salvation. God is guarding your salvation. God is guarding your salvation. People ask the question often to me as a pastor, maybe to you, can a Christian lose their salvation? And it's a decent question, isn't it? Because throughout our life, we see people come, people go. Jesus himself sometimes spoke to thousands of people, sometimes just like 12 and then 11. But when it comes to his elect, those God who has chosen, there is no doubt. The question is not, can a Christian lose their salvation? The question is, can God lose a Christian? The answer is no. He has pursued you. He has loved you. He sent Jesus to live, die, and rise for you. He gifted you with faith. He called you to himself. He's justified you. 
He's glorified you. He holds you. Therefore, there is now nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. No financial distress, no breakdown in a relationship, no sickness. God has you. He holds you and he's going to keep you, even when you don't know if you can keep yourself. Like, let's just talk a little bit quickly. Two years pandemic, it's been rough. And there's times, isn't there, in the midst of all of that disappointment where we start questioning everything. We're so displaced by the uncertainty, we start questioning who am I? What am I living for? What's actually important? And I reckon burrowed in those questions at some point, you've had a moment where you're like, ah, do I even believe in God anymore? This is really odd to say out loud, but even as a pastor, I've found myself questioning did I make the right decision? And yet, by God's grace, I'm here. By God's grace, I stand secure in the gospel. I love Jesus. And you are here. In the midst of all of our wandering and temptation and trial, you are here. You continue to love God. You continue to pray. You continue to serve. You continue to give. You continue to open up your home. You continue to care for the poor. You continue to help people know about Jesus. Why? Because God has your salvation. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Those he brings, he never lets go. He's got you. He's got you. He's got your family. He's got your relationships. He's got your finances. He's got your career. He's got your salvation, right? We don't have God. God has us. And that's good news of great joy. As the band comes up, I want to just finish with this final little section. Because in the coming weeks, we're going to see more and more how this shapes our life, our relationships, our response to governing authorities, what it means to be a a man, a woman, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter. We're going to look at all of that together. But I just want you to notice what Peter sees when he looks out on his church. We bring up that final verse. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. When when Peter looks upon the church, he sees joy. He doesn't see an easy life, a comfortable life. He sees people suffering various trials. He sees exiles, strangers, outsiders. And yet, there is this joy in them that is so countercultural. We can all have joy when things are going well, but these are a people who have a joy in the midst of the flames. And really, this is what transformed the early church and indeed the world, was their joy in God that transcended the temptations and trials of this fleeting and passing world. You know, perhaps you've lost sight of the hope that is yours in Christ. Perhaps you have felt weighed down by the trials and temptations of this world. Perhaps you've lost a little bit of the joy that you once had. I want you to know today, I want to press on your heart, we are elect exiles. Yes, there will be times where we're on the outside. 
backed into a corner. But in the hand of mighty God, we can arise. You can arise every day and say, I am loved. I am free. I have a living hope. I've been born again. I was chosen. I was called. I'm justified. In Jesus, I am righteous. In Christ, I am His. Let's take a moment now to receive that good news in prayer. So wherever you are, let's, let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the wonder of your gospel, the good news of your saving grace. Help us to be a people you've called us to be. Help us to trust you amidst the flames of this world. Help us to rejoice in you and give you all the glory. Fill us now with your spirit that we would stand as your elect exiles, loving you, serving this world and living for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.